My name is Juliana Duchess, and I am a fellow with the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute. I will enter my sophomore year at the University of Navarra in Pamplona, Spain this September, and I'd like to thank you all for being here today. Having attended an all-girls Catholic school for seven years, I'm pleased to introduce Ashley McGuire, a senior fellow with the Catholic Association and founding editor of the web magazine Alt Femme, dedicated to examining the connection between faith and gender. With the Catholic Association, Ashley McGuire focuses on the critical topics of religious freedom, Catholicism, and women. She has made appearances on CNN, CBS, Fox, and the BBC to share her input on these issues, and her articles have been published by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and Time Magazine, among many other platforms. Ashley McGuire traveled to Rome to cover the Papal Conclave in March of 2013 and provided live commentary for a number of international outlets including Fox News, CNN, and the BBC. In April of 2014, her work took her to Geneva to testify at the United Nations in defense of the Holy See. Her wisdom has been sought at a number of college campuses, such as New York University and Yale Law School, where she was invited to speak about the pro-life movement, religious liberty, and feminism. A 2011 recipient of the Phillips Foundation Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship, and of the Susan B. Anthony List's Young Pro-Life Leader Award, Ashley McGuire has been widely recognized for her work to promote and defend conservative causes. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband and three children. Ashley will also be signing her new book, Sex Scandal, The Drive to Abolish Male and Female, after her talk, which you all will receive a copy of. Please join me in welcoming Ashley McGuire. Thank you very much for that introduction, and thank you so much to the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute for having me today. I'm very excited to be here today because this is my first foray back out into the real world after having a baby a month ago, so I'm hoping I can speak in complete sentences, so bear with me if I kind of blank out in the middle of a sentence. Um, but I was also excited, I've, I've long admired this organization, um, and that's because I've long admired Claire Booth Luce. And, um, I've had a lot of time to sit around on the couch lately, and so as I was preparing for this, I spent a little time reading more about her um, and learned some interesting things that I did not know. Many of you may already know this, um, being affiliated with, with the organization in her namesake, but I learned, for example, that she was the author of a play that at the time was considered sort of novel because it featured only women. The play was called The Women, which seemed appropriate to the topic of my talk. Um, I also learned that she was a politician and was in Congress, and I loved this. She um, got into a spat with FDR, who thought he was insulting her when he called her a, quote, sharp-tongued glamour girl of 40. Um, <laughs> so I thought, um, you're doing something right if that's, if that's the way FDR tries to insult you. I also learned that she was invited to be a co-sponsor to the Equal Rights Amendment, um, and when her name did not appear on the legislation, she said that the invitation had got lost in the mail. Um, so something tells me that it would have been great to know a woman like her in our day. Um, so one of the most common questions I get as to why I wrote this book, which has this very sort of salacious cover, um, Sex Scandal, is why did I want to write this book? Um, I've been a writer for about 10 years. I came here um, to Washington, D.C. after graduating from Tufts University. And um, I sort of got into this topic at my time at Tufts. So I always love talking to uh, college students. I'm assuming most of you are either in college or recent college graduates. 
Um, so I got into this topic during my time at Tufts, uh, really when the um, Valentine's Day of my senior year, I went into the Student Center and was surprised to discover that they were hosting what they called a sex fair. And um, the sex fair had absolutely nothing to do with romance um, or anything like that. And so I wrote an article arguing that um, promoting that sort of um, sexuality completely untethered from any morality was probably having something to do with the ongoing rape crisis that Tufts had at the time that I was there. And I was not expecting the blowback that I got, um, but that sort of made me realize that, wow, I'd really sort of struck a nerve, and that got me into a career of writing when I came to Washington, D.C. Um, so 10 years later, I feel like things are even crazier, and I can't even imagine what it's like to be a young woman on a college campus today. Um, but I think a lot of people, when they think about the issue of um, sex, and when I, when I say sex, I think most people are thinking of gender. When they think about gender, gender equality, gender neutrality, um, they're, probably they're probably jumping to the issue of things like bathroom bills. That's what we hear about in the news all the time. I don't think people are thinking about how bathroom bills relate to Beyonce, how Beyonce relates to boardroom quotas, um, how all of this relates to efforts to draft women into the military, um, how that relates to things like campus rape, how that relates to things like preschools banning Legos for gender equity reasons. Um, so what my book is an attempt to do is to step back and thread all of those pieces together and show that I think somewhere starting in the sexual revolution in the 70s and 80s, things, especially feminism, got off track. And we kind of latched onto this idea um, that gender equality equals gender sameness, um, or that the way you treat the sexes equally is to treat them as if they were the same. And now we've reached a point where it's becoming completely anathema or scandalous um, to even make arguments or just reinst re reinstate facts, the most basic biological facts about sexual difference. And the thesis of my book is that this is especially harmful to women. Um, I think women are the biggest losers in, in a world that denies the differences between the sexes. A, because we have the most to lose. We're vulnerable in a way that men are not. Um, B, because we have something different to contribute to a sort of male society. Um, and what I think winds up happening, and what's very much happened today, is that women are held to sort of a male standard. Um, and that's a standard against which we're essentially doomed to fail, because we're not men. Um, and so I want to give an example of, I'll, I'll read you a quote from my book, a quote from Hugh Hefner that's in my book, um, that I think sort of embodies the way that starting back in the 70s and 80s, we got into this mindset um, that women should be like men. That's what equality between the sexes look like. So this was from a relatively recent interview that Hugh Hefner gave for Esquire. Um, in which he first of all says, I was a feminist before there was such thing as feminism. Um, he says, women were the major beneficiary of the sexual revolution. It permitted them to be natural sexual beings as men are. That's where feminism should have been all along. The quote's a lot longer and he talks about uh, his role in promoting abortion and contraception and in particular in getting involved in the case of Roe v. Wade. Um, but I think that quote right there is sort of really sums up what I'm talking about. But what I'd like to do in my talk today is to do three things. 
I want to give three examples that I think very clearly demonstrate the way um, making sex differences scandalous is hurting women in particular. Um, two, I want to step back and ask, how did we get to this point? Um, and third, I want to give what I think is cause for hope, that um, all is not lost and that I think there's still very much uh, a desire in society that I think is very women-driven um, to recognize sexual difference as the right path to sexual equality. So the first example of a way that all of this is hurting women has to do with something very much uh, personally related to me in the last uh, year or so, and that is pregnancy. Um, and this actually happened after my book came out. Um, just, I think it was the week or the week after my book came out, the British Medical Association, which is the British equivalent of the American Medical Association, so sort of the leading consortium of British doctors, published a leaflet that was intended to be distributed at workplaces where they recommended that employers not use the phrase expectant mother and instead use the phrase pregnant people. And they said, you should not use the word breastfeeding, you should use the word chest feeding. Um, lest anybody be offended by the fact that women and only women can bear and birth children. That may seem like a, cr a crazy, one-off, isolated incident, but actually a couple of years ago, the Midwives Alliance of North America, which is the largest alliance of doulas and midwives in the country, um, changed their lexicon to adopt the phrase birthing individual uh, into their official language as a sort of gender-neutral way to talk about women um, or to talk about people. Um, and when they got blowback from a number of um, midwives, including the sort of iconic feminist midwife Ina Mae Gaskin, um, a writer who described himself as an expectant parent lamented at the, in the Huffington Post that some women had the audacity to, quote, assert that only women have the ability to give birth and that such capacity is what women should celebrate about themselves. Um, so I think it's sort of fascinating to see that on the one hand in society we have this drive to adopt things like paid maternity leave, but on the other hand it's becoming increasingly offensive to actually talk about the reality that only women can have children. And I think that raises serious questions for what happens to women in a world where even that is an offensive statement of fact. The second area that I want to talk about is the college campus, which was recently labeled as C by CNBC as, quote, one of the most dangerous places for women in America. Um, you know, I, I know that the question of rape on college campuses is something that's very much discussed and debated, how prevalent it is, but I think nobody can deny that it's an issue. The degree to which it is debated, but um, that it is a concern on college campuses. But what's fascinating is that even as rape on campus has been increasing, um, the universities are increasingly pushing towards more co-ed housing. Not just co-ed housing, but co-ed housing um, by floor, increasingly by bathroom, and now increasingly by room. I was shocked when I was doing the research for my book to discover that something like 40 universities now actually allow um, co-ed housing by room. I'm curious how many women here had co-ed floors, so most. Um, what about co-ed bathrooms? Less. I had co-ed co floors, not bathrooms, but it was not an uncommon sight to see a man walking down my hallway in a towel, 
when I was in college. Um, and that was something you really didn't have a choice about. There was maybe one option for women who felt uncomfortable with that, um, which I then opted for. And even then, we still had men sleeping in our dorm, sleeping over with women. So as this is happening, we know statistically that the dorms are actually one of the most, if not the most, unsafe place for women on college campuses. In 2014, 74% of all reported rapes at college, 82% of reported on-campus rapes, and 53% of what they termed on-campus fondlings happened in student housing. Another extensive study conducted over the course of a decade on rape and sexual assault in colleges in Massachusetts found that 81% of rapes and sexual assaults took place in a dorm versus 9% in houses and apartments and 4% in fraternities. In the book, I gave the example of Harvard University, which thought it was tackling this issue, oddly enough, by actually punishing students who participated in uh, co-ed I'm sorry, in same-sex groups and organizations, social clubs. Um, they, they thought that this would be a way to make women safer. Um, and what they weren't expecting is that when they did this, um, it was actually women who reacted. I don't know if any of you remember this was sort of big last year, um, but women actually protested on Harvard's campus um, when they were told that they would be punished with things like being stripped of student leaderships, student scholarships, if they participated in single-sex clubs. Many of these women were participating in these clubs because they felt safe there, many of them because they had been raped. Um, and the school's reaction, instead of saying, uh, when they had hundreds of women marching through campus saying things like, assault is not our fault, um, with a hashtag campaign called Hear Her Harvard, um, instead of backing up and saying, hmm, maybe we've made a mistake, um, the school said, quote, change is difficult. This was from their PR representative. Change is difficult, and it's often met initially by opposition. That was certainly true with past steps to remove gender barriers at Harvard. Yet few today would reverse those then controversial decisions. We continue to believe that gender discrimination has no place on Harvard's campus. So in other words, women are sexist for demanding single-sex safe spaces even when they've been assaulted on account of their sex. Or as one of my favorite columnists and Harvard graduate Naomi Schaefer Riley put it, Harvard told its women to quote, go where the rapes are. The third example I want to give has to do with women's sports. Bernice Sandler, who has been dubbed the godmother of Title IX, called the legislation that she helped to draft the most important step for gender equality since the 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote. Title IX discriminates, um, pro prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex. I could go into a whole long conversation about um, what's happened with that legislation recently um, in the attempt to replace sex with gender, but just sticking to the narrow issue of sports, which I think, you know, among the debated issues in Title IX, the issue of women's sports is the most uncontroversial. It's something that people on both sides agree was a good thing, um, that women benefited greatly from having more opportunities, more access to sports. Essentially what the law did was tell schools that have, that receive in any way public funding must show that they're creating equal opportunities for men and women in the sports. And if there aren't enough women, say, you know, not enough women to create a lacrosse team, the women would actually have the right to play on the men's team, but not vice versa. The idea being that men are not suffering from a lack of opportunities to play, a lack of opportunity to play sports. So what resulted after Title IX um, paved the way for women's sports was a 1,079% increase in female participation in sports, which didn't actually detract from male participation, which also saw a 22% increase over that same time. 
So these were women who were then going on to get scholarships to college, um, many other sort of opportunities, lucrative professional opportunities, things like that. Um, but things started to change about a decade ago when increasingly courts and athletic institutions began to interpret the idea of Title IX as prohibiting discrimination literally. In other words, meaning you cannot look at men and women in any way as if they are different. So people first paid attention to this when in 2011 a male high school senior named Will Higgins competed in a girls state swim meet in Massachusetts. He, and this was a male who self-identified as a male. I'm not talking about a transgender male. He won the 50-yard freestyle race, surprise, and broke the meet record with a time that would not have even qualified him to compete in the same race in the boys' division. The lead paragraph of a Boston Globe article covering the controversy was, that ensued was Orwellian. The article read, quote, the governing body that regulates high school athletics in Massachusetts is taking a closer look at the controversy surrounding mixed gender swim teams and will soon address the issue of boys breaking girls swimming records. Again, that may sound like a sort of strange one-off, but in fact, um, when athletic institutions dug deeper, they found that boys competed on eight different high school girls swim teams at Massachusetts and several of the boys qualified to compete at the state level. The Globe summed up the situation. Athletic officials are limited in what they can do. In the eyes of the Massachusetts Interscholastic Athletic Association, there's no stopping boys from competing on girls' swim teams because state law mandates equal access to sports for both genders. If a boy wants to swim and there is no boys' swimming program offered at his school, he is allowed to swim with the girls. Pennsylvania noticed the same thing. In 2013, they noticed a surge in boys playing on girls' sports teams. One survey conducted by the Pennsylvania Interscholastic Athletic Association found that approximately 30% of schools reported having boys on a girls' sports team. Then Attorney General of Pennsylvania said, athletic equity is required by the Pennsylvania Equal Rights Amendment and the ERA will not allow a rule barring boys from participating or playing on girls' teams just as the ERA will not allow a rule barring girls from participating or playing on boys' teams. The general counsel for the PIAA summed up the issue with a series of questions. When equal treatment creates fundamentally unequal and unfair competition, should gender-blind equality trump fairness? Also, if boys and girls can each and without limitation play sports designated for the other gender, does there remain any legitimacy in having teams classified by gender? If not, should the classifications be merged and all teams considered co-ed since gender is not a limitation on what student a, team, a student should play? Such an approach would likely devastate female athletics at the high school level and is not a realistic or a practical option, he wrote. And that doesn't even get into the issue of boys who self-identify as girls playing on girls' teams or, as we recently saw, in a wrestling controversy, a girl who self-identified as a boy who was allowed an exception to um, sports athletic rules barring the use of enhancement drugs like testosterone in order to play. But my point here is that in every single one of these scenarios, girls' sports loses out. So how did we get to this brave new gender-fluid world? How did we reach the point where Legos are banned from elementary schools for gender equity reasons, where father-daughter dances are canceled for being non-inclusive, where our politicians are seriously considering making America's daughters register for the selective service, 
where rape crisis centers are fighting in court to bar biological males from entering, and where, quote, not every rape is considered a gender-motivated hate crime, as the judge put it in her ruling against the singer Kesha, who sued her former boss at Sony, Dr. Luke, for using his authority over her to systematically sexually assault her. This is one of the most common questions I get, is how did we get here? I think one thing that we have to do, and I, I think especially as conservatives, this is something that's important to us, is to step back and look at the language of the debate. I think one of the most common things that I've discovered in writing this book is how many people are confused about the difference between the meaning of the word sex and the meaning of the word gender. A lot of people conflate them, um, treat them as if they are one and the same, or even have swapped understandings of the definitions. My mom, who's a well-educated attorney when I was writing the book, she told me, oh, Ashley, you have to be careful. Gender means um, your biological distinctions as a male, female. Sex is sort of, you know, how you associate. I was like, no, it's the opposite. So I think people have a lot of misperceptions about that. Um, and I did something like 90 radio interviews when my book came out, and I kept getting asked this question, well, what's the difference between sex and gender? And when you're doing radio interviews, you have these very sort of, you have to come up with sort of pithy um, talking points because you don't have a lot of time. And I finally boiled it down to this. Sex means something, gender means nothing. So sex has a very clear-cut medical definition. And if you go into the world of science, and I know everything's science right now, so if we're gonna talk about science, if you go into the scientific world um, where you have doctors, researchers, scientists, they all know what sex means. It means male or female as defined by two things, your chromosomes and your genitalia, the end. Gender, is something that really nobody can define. And I think even if you go into the world of gender theory, if you were to go into a women's studies department or a gender studies department on a college campus and ask them what gender means, you will get literally an infinite number of definitions. I think one example of how unable people are to define what gender means um, was given to us by Facebook a couple of years ago when they decided to move away from just offering the drop-down boxes of male or female, um, and they introduced, I think it was something like 70 different genders that included things like pan-gender, demi-boy, and two-spirit, um, and many, many others. Uh, and here they thought they were being so progressive and um, offering all these people a more inclusive way to feel associated with Facebook. And what they were not expecting was to get massive blowback from all of the other people who said their gender was not represented. Uh, and they eventually got such heat for it that they had to change it to simply other. Um, and I, I have a quote in the book from um, a legal scholar who's talking about this, a British legal scholar talking about the issue of gender and how do you define gender. And um, this scholar says, once we assert that the problem with gender is that we currently recognize only two of them, the obvious question to ask is, how many genders would we have to recognize in order not to be oppressive? Just how many possible gender identities are there? The only consistent answer to this is seven billion, give or take. There are as many possible gender identities as there are humans on the planet. Your gender can be frost or the sun or music or the sea or Jupiter or pure darkness. Your gender can be pizza. But what becomes of women in a world where we have the same legal status as pizza? 
This is something that has actually been unfolding before us for decades, I argue. So I, the first question I always get is, what's the difference between sex and gender? The next question I ask is, how did we get to this point? Because it feels like insanity. And I think a lot of people you know, are just sort of like, whoa, how did I wake up one day and I literally am not allowed to use the word pregnant woman without potentially getting slapped with some sort of civil rights lawsuit? Um, and the answer is, I think you have to go back to the sexual revolution. And what happened in the sexual revolution is that feminists, in particular, began to argue that um, our, our sexual differences are constructs. I mean, how many times have you heard that, that um, sex is a construct or that gender is a construct? That the sort of outward differences are freak accidents? Um, or, you know, more often than not, what I hear is that um, gender is a social construct meant to oppress women. It's a tool of the patriarchy to keep women down. You know, there's sort of these false differences they've invented to suggest that women are the weaker sex and they should stay home, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I think what started to happen is that women began to make this argument that they're constructs and that if we can just eradicate the differences between men and women, then we will have achieved um, equality with men. But that sort of assumed that there was something inherently flawed about women. In other words, instead of sort of asserting our equality by embracing our differences, in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, feminism, second wave feminism, really began to argue that it is by rejecting our differences that we assert equality with men. But the problem is, the whole time we were using male standards as a baseline, things like strength, aggressiveness, assertiveness, things that are often associated with men, um, it was only when women manifested those qualities that they were considered um, strong women. I mean, even the Wonder Woman thing. I haven't gone to see Wonder Woman because I've been taking care of a newborn. But, um, you know, on the one hand, she seems sort of feminine. She's also highly sexualized, which I think is also sort of uh, a nod to the male preference or the male baseline, that, like, the ideal woman is a highly sexualized woman. Um, but this idea that she's some sort of a feminist role model because she's out, you know, doing slitting throats or, you know, engaging in hand-to-hand -hand combat, that that's sort of the ideal woman. So I think what happened now is that we've gone so far down the path of these differences are constructs that we've sort of created our, ca our own catch-22s. Unfortunately, though, I think this has had the effect of empowering men all the more and objectifying and degrading women. And if you don't believe me, I always refer, refer people back to Hugh Hefner, who um, was making these arguments long before anybody was paying close attention. So now we're living out the logical extremes of the argument that our biological sex is a random accident and that all perceptible differences between the sexes, in particular reproductive differences, are arbitrary and socialized. We are on the final frontier of this logic, or as the author of a forthcoming book called Burn Down the Binary put in a recent article, the ultimate goal of the gender identity movement is to demolish, quote, the entire heterobinary structuring of the world. This is the real struggle. But is this possible? So to my third section of my talk, um, I want to end on a more positive note because I was, I was fascinated as, as I was writing the book to see on the one hand you have people so aggressively trying to deny the differences between the sexes, yet on the other hand you're finding more and more scientific research um, showing just how different we are. I just saw, I haven't had the chance to read this, a big study came out of Stanford about just how different the male and female brains are. 
as well as sort of a drive for a recognition um, that women should have separate spaces for men. So I wanted to give a few examples. Um, one example has to do with medicine and the pharmaceutical industry. Um, for a long time, when there was a new drug that was being researched, the pharmaceutical industry would just test it on men. They would do a test, often because men had the free time, women were home taking care of children, they would run the test on men, and then when they would find, once they got the FDA approvals, as soon as women took the drug, their bodies had completely different reactions because our bodies are so different. So just in the last 10 to 15 years or so, they've changed the laws, and now any sort of drug has to be tested separately on both men and women. Another example that I think probably many of you are familiar with, or if you're not, you will be soon as you and your friends start to have babies, and that is the gender reveal craze. I mean, it should really be called sex reveal craze, but um, you've probably seen this on Facebook, people, parents who are expecting, they do some sort of elaborate revelation of the sex of their unborn baby. Maybe they do the thing with the pink and the blue cake, um, or they have some kind of party, or they do a picture where they have balloons. Um, and many people actually do have parties where they announce it as a surprise, and people make a really huge deal out of it. Uh, in the book, I document how Baby Center, which is a big parenting website, um, experienced a 900% increase in threads on gender reveal parties in just one year. In the one six-month str stretch, YouTube saw an even larger increase in gender reveal videos uploaded to the site. Um, the third example is single-sex education. In 2004, there were 34 single-sex public schools in America. In 2014, that number has exploded to 850. Um, Washington, D.C. has a single-sex uh, all-boys public school, and I just read that they're about to get an all-girls public school. Um, and related to that has been an emerging body of research that finds that men and women learn, boys and girls learn very differently in school. Everything down to the temperature, the volume at which uh, instruction is given, and even sort of the layout of the classroom. They found that men learn better in rows, girls learn better in tables where they're facing each other. Um, the fourth would be toys. So interestingly, as I was writing the book, Target made its move to um, stop segregating toys on the basis of sex. Um, but at the same time, Lego experimented with a line of Legos designed exclusively for girls and found that it was one of their best-selling sets they had ever created, one of their best-selling lines. Um, one of my favorite writers, Jonathan Last, called its Disney Castle set, quote, a Death Star for girls and a, quote, 4,080-piece step towards gender equality, the kind of set that would make a girl scream uncontrollably on Christmas morning. What happened there was the executives at Lego actually consulted with girls about what they wanted to see in Legos because they were trying to address the fact that girls are just less likely to play with Legos than boys. And when they designed this line to what the girls said they wanted in the toy, it exploded. Um, the point here being that it was in acknowledging the different desires of girls that they were able to actually achieve the outcome of much more equal playing of Legos with the two sexes. Um, another example would be female-only spaces. There's been an explosion of female-only gyms. Many of these exercise, um, like core power, things like that, are now coming out with studios that or classes that are just for women. Um, there is increasing an increasing number of women-only shared working spaces. A couple of them are in Washington, D.C. One of them has a spa theme, um, is another example. And then finally, sociologists are just beginning to understand the different ways that women engage the workforce and society for the good of all. 
In the book, I give the example of Bill Gates, who attributes his decision to give away almost his entire fortune to the women in his life. Uh, Women-only run hedge funds were, more, were less likely to lose money in the 2008 financial crisis, um, something psychologists attribute to the fact that women have a more um, sort of horizontal way of looking at things, whereas men are sort of linear and aggressive and much more likely to take risks. Um, women were, were much more likely to step back and sort of look at the bigger picture that was going on. Um, and then this is one of my favorite examples. There was a study that came out that found uh, CEOs, male CEOs who had a child, if their firstborn child was a son, um, they were more likely to cut pay across the board at their company. But if their firstborn child was a daughter, they were actually more likely to give their employees raises. And sociologists attribute these last couple examples I gave to the fact that there's something about women in society, our presence, our difference, our sort of complementary nature, um, that better men. Um, that make men more inclined to be charitable, more inclined to look outside of themselves. Um, I give countless examples, other examples like this in the book, but it's been really fun to see all the different ways that sociology is actually not just confirming our differences, but showing that um, women bring something essential to the table, something essential for a, a just society, that we, we help make men better um, and in doing so better ourselves. So in conclusion, I want to quote one of the most complex celebrities in Hollywood, Beyonce Carter Knowles, who said, quote, humanity requires both men and women, and we are equally important and need one another. Um, and just my sort of concluding point is that men and women, we complement each other in essential ways, and we don't need to be threatened by what makes us different. This is sort of the point that I want to drive home in my book, is that um, this, I think most people are people of goodwill, um, and are seeking equality between men and women. But my argument is that in order to achieve that equality, we have to start by understanding, recognizing, acknowledging, and even celebrating what makes us different. Um, so with that, um, thank you. I'm happy to take any questions about, about my topic or about writing a book. Thank you. Um, and I had a question for you just kind of about the Catholic faith in general um, and, and its relation with um, being a female. So growing up Catholic, um, I didn't really know much else, but then getting to college and seeing a lot of people that were of other faiths, um, it made me kind of step back and look at the way that females are portrayed in the, in the Catholic religion. Um, and I know last year the Pope came out to say that women um, will never be able to be priests or bishops or um, cardinals, the Pope, any, anything like that. So um, for me, that was incredibly discouraging. Um, and so if you can maybe touch on that a little bit, um, it's something that I've very much been curious about. And I know you, you know much more than I do. Sure. So yeah, I'm happy to address that question because I'm actually a convert to Catholicism. <laughs> And actually, it was the church's teaching on women that first piqued my curiosity, because I thought, this is kind of crazy. And then the more I got to know the church, the more I felt like um, the church, and I think more broadly Christianity, too, um, 
is one of the only institutions that's out there actually affirming the unique dignity of women in a culture that's constantly undermining them. Um, you know, I get the question about female priests all the time. In fact, one of my favorite memories of getting asked about female priests was when I was covering the conclave, and I got asked to go on Anderson Cooper's show. And, you know, if you do TV interviews, it usually goes like this. The producer calls you, you do what's called a pre-interview, because they actually, even if they're going to grill you, they don't want you to just, like, totally melt down on TV. So they want to make sure, like, you know, you have a sense of what questions are coming in. So we did, you know, the back and forth, and that issue did not come up. And then what they do, the producer then goes and writes what goes on the teleprompter for whoever the show, the host is. And often the host will do a little bit of, you know, give or take with it, but they tend to stick to it. So I was standing there doing the interview with Anderson Cooper, and it was me and another guy, and the, I can see his teleprompter, and it comes to my thing. He's like, now Ashley, and it was some question about, I don't even remember what it was, not about female priests. And he was like, you're a woman. How could, he just completely went off script and just, like, pinned me with that question. Um, so I'm very used to being asked it. I mean, I think um, a couple of things. One, one argument that I actually make is that I think um, the, this is actually a classic example of comparing men, um, comparing women to men as the baseline for equality. So what I often reply with is saying, well, isn't it, aren't we sort of sexist if we're only saying that women can be equal to the church equal in the church to men if they're doing what men are doing. In other words, why aren't men complaining that they can't be nuns? Because in the eyes of the church, the work of nuns and priests is completely equal. In fact, the church's sort of whole ethos is about service. I think if you're thinking about things in terms of power um, and power structures, then yes, I can see the concern, but the teaching of the church is actually the highest calling is service, service to others. And that's something that men and women live out equally. And actually the church um, you know, the, our highest calling as, as people is to become saints. That's what the church says, that you should live your life trying to be a saint. And the church has been making women into saints for hundreds of years and making them what are called doctors of the church um, for centuries. And so I actually think the church, you know, if you look at it a different way, and it uh, has actually been more progressive on the issue of women um, than people give it credit for and has been giving women titles um, for hundreds of years, long before women were even getting an education. Um, but that's a long-loaded question. But I, I understand, I see where you're coming from, but I think a lot of women um, really still find the Catholic Church to be a very um, appealing place because they feel very affirmed as a woman there in a culture that's so highly sexualized and degrading uh, and treats women like objects um, and so on and so forth. With the rise of publicity and protests coming from the transgender community, um, how do you think that's going to affect the relationship between the sexes versus the genders? Like, how do you think the transgender community is helping or hurting? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't get into this in my book, but there's a lot of interesting stuff there. One is that within the liberal universe, um, there's actually a lot of division about how the transgender movement fits in, specifically within feminism. Um, so for example, there are people who want to eliminate any idea of a gender binary, which, you know, that's sort of a wishy-washy way of saying men and women, um, that there are two poles or whatever. 
Um, but transgenders actually want to affirm that because they want to feel affirmed in their decision to change sexes. Um, so there's that tension. Um, there's also a growing tension between feminists and the transgender movement because some very radical feminists, and this is where you're seeing a very interesting alignment between radical feminists and social conservatives, um, because we're equally concerned about essentially this idea of erasing women um, in a gender neutral world. So the radical feminists, um, you know, they're coming at it from a different perspective, but it's sort of the same thing. In other words, you know, what, how can women make claims on the basis of our sex if we can't even, if sex is not even a valid category? Um, and you saw this with the Women's March, for example. The Women's March chose to use a vulgar um, demonstrate or a vulgar depiction of the female genitalia as sort of its motto and that was offensive to the transgender community and there was a whole debate about whether or not that was non-inclusive the radical feminists were like you know that's an affront to our like, manifestation of our womanhood and the transgenders were saying that's um, non-inclusive so it's been interesting to see those tensions and I think there's a lot more that needs to be resolved there um, but uh, I'm not exactly sure where that's going to go. And then on the other hand, I think, too, you have a lot of people who um, are just sort of well-meaning people, as I said, who care about sexual equality, who have a little bit of whiplash about what's been going on lately and are sort of like, I'm for sexual equality, I'm a tolerant person, I don't have anything against somebody who identifies as transgender, but I'm really not okay with a teenage boy having the right to say, I self-identify as a girl, and therefore can go into the girls' locker room where they're changing. Um, in fact, there was a very high-profile resignation of one of the chapter leaders of the ACLU, Georgia chapter, who her, her own daughters felt threatened by a transgender male in the bathroom and she was like whoa I'm not comfortable with this I'm not comfortable with the ACLU's position on this because she viewed it as in tension with women's rights and she said what about women who've been raped um, who are in the bathroom and are suddenly exposed to male genitalia or who feel unsafe I mean I always tell people there's a reason women's bathrooms are all stall I mean even among women we're very private um, and so anyways, but this woman just got raked over the coals for what she did. And I watched an interview with her on The View, and she said, um, when did women's rights stop mattering anymore? And, you know, what I would define as women's rights is not what she would define as women's rights, at least in totality. But it, it, goes, it went to show that there's a sort of fault line there, I think, in the liberal universe that does not suggest this issue is going to just propel forward the way certain other issues have. And um, I've noticed something that's been discouraging to me personally is that a lot of women um, in the workplace that I have, um, just in the way they carry themselves, especially in their speech, it seems like they want to put themselves on the same level as men in a lot of ways. And it also seems that the men in the workplace view that as um, they kind of take note of that. And so then I come in and they think that I almost don't care if I'm treated the same way. And I want to be treated like a lady, even if another female in my office does not care. So like on a day-to-day -day basis, at a most basic level, what are some ways that we can kind of carry ourselves in a way that exudes, I want to be treated like a lady because I'm proud of my femininity? Yeah. 
Yeah, I re I had similar experiences at an um, office place that I will not name the name of, but um, it was very obvious that men had grown to. This is sort of one of the great ironies of feminism is that I actually think women, it's easier for men to mistreat women than it might have even been in the 50s and 60s. I'm not saying we should be nostalgic and say that was a great time for women, um, but the way men can treat women now, I seriously wonder which time was worse. Um, and as to what to do, I don't know that I have the answer to that question other than to just keep doing what you're doing. And I think that's the beauty of organizations like this, is that it's sort of, I think having friends who feel the same way that you can sort of self-reinforce with. Um, I really developed a strong network of girlfriends uh, when I moved to Washington, D.C., and when I realized that, you know, I was, I mean, I was sort of used to it from college because I think the way women are treated on college, at least my college, was absolutely horrible. Um, and so it was just sort of like a dressed up version of that in Washington, D.C., in many respects. Um, but finding friends who, um, you know, unfortunately, I think I do think men outgrow a lot of that. Um, so when you're working with men your own age, I think that changes as they get older. But so I think to the extent that you know, on like the weekends, you can find ways to socialize with other women. Um, that's a great thing to do. Um, but you know, I think the best thing you can do is what you were just saying to continue carrying yourself in a certain way. And I think men recognize that. I mean, the reality is that they receive their cues from us and they follow those cues. Um, and, you know, many people say it's sort of sexist to say this, but unfortunately the reality is the responsibility falls on us. We're the ones who set the cultural bar. Um, and I think if we want to be treated chivalrously, we have to send the signals, send the clear signals that, that say that. Um, I was just, my question kind of like parallels with hers, but not from men, from other women actually that may identify as new wave feminists um, that like say I'm a disgrace for, you know, maybe wanting to like have a husband and children one day and be a stay-at-home mom and say that, you know, I should completely disregard that lifestyle because it's a disgrace as a woman and I'm weak. So how would you combat talking to other women that say that kind of? Yeah, well, you know, that's, um, I do think a little bit of this has been changing. I do think there is an increasing sense among millennial women um, that the choice, you know, we're sort of freeing ourselves from this idea that the only way we can have fulfilled, you know, our purpose on earth is to have a killer career and wait till we're 38 to get married and have, you know, one kid or whatever. Um, so, I mean, often what I do is just sort of use their own language back on them, um, language about choice. In fact, I think it's Brad Wilcox, um, who I work with on some issues, who's, who has started calling it choice feminism. I love that. I'm always, you know, I, it's a, that's a phrase that I've started using in my own writing, um, that you're just embracing choice feminism. And I think that's sort of like a little, a rhetorical stun gun, like, they don't know what to do when you use choice and feminism with your issue and put it back on them. So um, I'm a big fan of co-opting their language and putting it back on them on the one hand. And then also I would just say as somebody who's, um, you know, was in your shoes 10 years ago and now in my early 30s and married with some kids and have a career too, is to just sort of make your own choices and live them happily. I've found that a lot of my friends 
who were maybe judgmental about my choices have since come around when they see how empowered I am by my own life. Um, and so I think that can be a great way to sort of evangelize that choice feminism is by making your own choices and living them out cheerfully. Thank you, that's all the time we have for Okay, questions. thank you.